Sharon Hurley Hall is an anti-racism activist, writer and educator. She is co-founder of Mission Equality, a company focused on achieving equality for everyone, everywhere. In this episode, Sharon shares her insights on tackling racism, her experiences as a global educator and how she is actively working towards a more inclusive society. Sharon's story is not just inspiring, but also a testament to the power of dedication and education in shaping a brighter, more equality-focused future. I was working for a small arm of a well-known national newspaper, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I put, I, you know, I put myself forward for a, a new role, which came with a certain pay rise. Uh, and I got the role, but I didn't get the whole pay rise. And there was some BS excuse about why I shouldn't get it. Mm. Uh, I can't remember exactly what they said at the time. I knew it was BS. I knew it was BS. I took the promotion and started looking for another job. Yeah. Which is so often what black people end up doing. Is that you end up moving in order to get what what you need or to, you know, to temporarily experience less harm. But you know, it's like, do workplaces really have to do have to work like this? And and so that's more, in addition to the anti-racism, that's that's part of what my current work is is about with, with mission equality. We're thinking, okay, how can we create a situation where people have more equality, more psychological safety in workplaces? And you know, it is. It's so important because I think that people, especially black people, uh, people of the global majority, experience so much harm in workplaces, in white majority workplaces, in white majority countries. Um, and that's not to say we don't experience harm in post-colonial countries too, because we do. Um, you know, it's all the same poisoned route, really, in my in my view. But is there a way that we can do less harm? Mm. And actually have a, a more pleasant, may I even say joyful experience sometimes. Yeah. I'm wondering what that, that looks like. What does a workplace that is moving the right way towards DEI, which is, you know, it's not performative, it's actually proactive. What does that look like in, in your world? Because I know there's a lot of different different arms to DEI. There's the people moving for neurodivergency. There's the people moving for, you know, LGBTQ rights. But I feel like you're kind of really focused around race equality or race equity, which is a hard fight to fight, you know, because it's a global battle and it's not something you can hide. You can enter the workplace and pretend to be, you know, neuro... Oh, I forgot the cry. The neurotypical. You can enter the workplace and not disclose the fact you might be part of the uh, the LGBTQ crowd. It'd be very hard pressed to walk into a workplace and not be black. You know, how do you how do you kind of <laughs> how do you keep that kind of mission going forward despite the the initial hardships that you're you're facing on a day to day basis? Okay, so in my in my own personal life, I am no longer working day to day in offices. Um, in our company, Mission Equality, we have aimed to do it differently from the beginning. We're a startup, and so we we launched uh, last June, right? So we're about 15 months old. And we started from the premises of how can we be more, how can we create more equality and be really people first in the way that we run the company? And so 
you know, my co-founder and I, well, first of all, the first policy that we wrote was our anti-racism policy, an anti-racism policy with teeth that says, you know, here's racism. We're going to believe black people when they experience racism. We're going to take steps for remediation when it happens. We're going to encourage white members of our team to, to do their own work. We're going to make spaces available where they can do that work as well. And, you know, really get to the point where people take responsibility for their actions, right? So there was that. We made it less hierarchical. We have no C-suite titles. Everybody is basically on the same pay scale according to the number of hours that they put in, right? Uh, what else? And, you know, we're, we're totally flexible. We encourage people to take the time they need to to rest for self-care, for whatever. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say, well, well, how does that work? How do you actually get anything done? Mm. But, you know, while we were while we were running, we, you know, we, were ha we had the system. We have managed to work with several companies, get large contracts, work with people, deliver what we need to deliver without anybody feeling completely exhausted and depleted at the end of that process. Now, I admit it's easier for us because we were new and we could just start from scratch. But I, I also believe that there are things that other, other companies can do, other workplaces can do to, to make the workplaces work better. And some of that starts with uh, understanding some of these ideas that underpin the ways that we behave and where those have come from. But more than that, it's being committed to make change, to make to make to make the world more a, a more equal place. Mm. I mean, inequity is based baked into everything, isn't it, yeah. Sam? It's like it's it's everywhere, everywhere around us, in every system, you know, because of capitalism, because of colonialism, because of enslavement, because of all those, because of patriarchy, you know, because of all those things. So, you know, all people who face isms are at the sharp end of that, yeah. right? And if you have, as you said, you know, I'm, I'm a black woman, you know, people who are black and trans, people who are black and disabled, who, people who face multiple isms, people, you know, if you're, you're also neurodivergent and you have lots of ways in which the world is not currently set up to work well for you. But the truth is that when you make things work for the people who are most marginalized you make it work better for everyone yeah right mm. and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a big ask yeah it shouldn't be a big ask yeah you know we have to unlearn this this whole notion of of what professionalism looks like because that's basically a white supremacist construct yeah i mean professionalism in and of itself is a, a strange concept because it, it then makes you have this kind of split personality almost of like this is work me and this is personal me and obviously yes there's some parts of yourself you don't bring to work but there should also be an element of you should feel comfortable at work that you're not you know going to be have to treading on eggshells and all that kind of stuff so i'm wondering you know we, we can talk all day about the specific challenges faced by each individual marginalized group of people, that kind of stuff. But let's try to be proactive here and talk about the ways that we can work on these things. Because there could be a person out there listening to this that is, you know, in that C-suite or in that place of hiring people. And they want to know how to proactively make sure their workplace is more diverse, more equitable. And, you know, as well as that being inclusive of all types of people. 
yes, we can talk about that, but but I want to I want to also set the stage a little, which is that it's not enough to bring people in. It's not enough to say you want to be more diverse and bring people in, people who face isms, if you have not laid the groundwork to make that place safe for them uh, psychologically and, and actually, right? There's no point saying, I want to recruit more black people. And then, you know, a black person comes in and they're the only one in there and they're completely unsupported and you treat them like they're other, right? I mean, many of us have had that experience. You know, you're the only person in there and you're like this this, this strange creature. They don't quite know what to make of you. Somehow, you know, you're not one of the boys or one of the girls. You don't get invited to the, to the lunches. You don't get invited to the social things. And so... You, you end up being, you know, operating at a deficit, even though you're turning up and you're doing your job, right? Mm. And so I see you nodding there. It's like, you know this, right? This is, this is, this is, this is how many of us experience, experience work. So you really have to, you have to shift your culture, which is an easier said than done, in order to create spaces that are safe for people. And, you know, a lot of the work that we do is helping people to make those 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 paradigm shifts about what work should look like and those cultural changes that underpin healthier workplaces. Right. Mm. Where, so, you know, we're, we're currently, for example, we have something that we call the mix or MX of equality. Mm-hmm which is a, a, a business and leadership program that we're rolling out to help people ask the right questions. You know, we don't say we have all the answers because who among us actually knows what equality looks like, right? Yeah. It's not something that we've experienced. It's something that we can only imagine. But, you know, you need to think about getting into practicalities. Okay, how are you... How are you communicating with people? How are you being transparent with people? How are you letting people know where you are in this process of becoming a more diverse and inclusive organization, right? People need to know what they're getting into, right? How are you looking at your hiring processes, right? Are you inadvertently or deliberately discriminating against people with names that don't necessarily match what you might expect as the norm for your particular area. I mean, I have had so many double takes. You know, I, I interviewed, my name is Sharon Hurley, Holly was Sharon Hurley. And so I walk in and then they do, they kind of wrap back because, you know, they're not expecting Sharon Hurley to look like me, mm. right? Yeah. They're expecting an Irish okay. woman to walk in, to be so, honest. They're expecting and they're expecting an Irish woman to, to walk in, you know, blue, blue eyed and blonde. And, you know, I'm the furthest thing from that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's how do you, how do you shift your own attitudes about what is expected? How do you make sure that when you get people in, they're going to be supported? How do you change policies that inadvertently might discriminate against people. So, for example, you know, does your workplace recognize several different cultural holidays equally, hmm. right? Or is it, you know, basically Christian-based? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, um, what is considered, you know, does your, does do your policies specify what is considered professional work at attire or hairstyles and does that discriminate against people who are wearing hijab or african inspired hairstyles yeah. right 
um, does your idea of professionalism depend on people making eye contact with you when there are people who are some neurodivergent people might find that uncomfortable. It doesn't affect their ability to do the job, right? So, you know, you have to you have to be prepared to go on to, to look at everything and strip away the non-essentials, right? That's that that's the first thing. And the other thing that we talk a lot about in our company is, is shifting from a paradigm of power and control to one of trust and freedom. Yeah. Right? Where people are trusted to do the job that you hired them to do and to do it in a way and in a time that works well for them. And, you know, you're not, you know, you're not wasting their, their time or yours by micromanaging for example, and you don't have a, a sort of punishment men mindset, right? Yeah, no, it's definitely. Because, I mean, that is, that, is, that, is, that is so rife in organizations. Yeah. Right? And that, and that you're not, yeah, that you don't have hustle culture for no reason. Mm. You don't have hustle culture for no reason. Yeah. So when, when you're working you know, it's like, in, a, in an, an organization that's got the old school mindset, is it like it's too far gone to bring it back? Or are there little steps you can take to bring it <laughs> closer to this this ideal that we're speaking of or this idea that we're speaking of, of a workplace where you feel you know trusted and comfortable? I believe that many workplaces can be saved for want of the better, or for want of a better word, if the leadership are committed, prepared to change and prepared to lead by example, right? Uh, and, you know, that means, that means a lot of things. That means, you know, the, the, you know, transparency and communication are key if you're trying to effect cultural change. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So you have to tell people where you want to go and you have to get there, you know, you have to, to, to get them involved. I mean, I don't think that anybody you know, is going to have a problem with more equal workplaces that work better for everyone. Yeah. You know, so you have, you have, you know, you have to start, you have to start by communicating. You have to start by, by, by looking at your policies and your processes. You have to think about what, you know, what are the changes that you would want to make in order to make this happen? You have to talk to the people that you're working with. Um, and you know, not as a as a, as a diktat from on high, but as a you know, we really you know we need everybody to be on board with this. We want to know what you think. We want to hear what your concerns are, and then, but you you also have to then make it. And you know, this is this may be tricky in some cases. If if you have had a culture where people are not encouraged to speak their minds or where it's not okay to make mistakes, then people might be hesitant about speaking up. If you have a culture where, you know, you as the leader of the organization can come to a meeting and say, hey, man, I really messed up with this thing. And, you know, here's what we're going to do now. If you if you go in with that, you know, that 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 openness, then you can start, I believe, to effect a cultural shift. Yeah. And, right. and workplace culture is, is something that everyone's talking about right now. Oh, make sure you get the culture right. If they're not a good culture fit, then don't worry about it. But what we tend to end up with now is these kind of weird echo chambers. So the people that are, you know, for lack of a better word, more woke, they work for the woke company that's woke through and through. And then the people that are more scared of woke culture, they'll 
hire a lot of white people and go, oh, there's too much white people here. Okay, let's hire a black person. Okay, we'll hire an Asian person. Okay, we'll hire a gay person. Then they go back to the, oh, no, I like him. He's, you know, just like me and all that kind of stuff. So how do we make sure that consistently our culture is inclusion focused without it becoming, like I said, an an echo chamber of ourselves or our self-beliefs? Well, you know, we have to stop talking about culture fit and maybe start thinking about culture ad. Mm. Start talking about, you know, accepting people with all the things that they bring in, not wanting people who are a reflection of yourself and, and, and those values that, you know, in some cases are harming everybody or certainly not helping. Um, and, 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 you know, recognizing that that, you know, so many of us have something to offer and it doesn't have to be offered in the way that you think it has to be offered to still to still be valuable, mm. you know? Yeah. So, um, oh, go on, sorry. Yeah. No, no, as you were. Sorry, I, I, <laughs> I thought you were winding up your point. Carry on, carry on, sorry. <laughs> no, you know, again, you know, in our company, we have lots of people that we're a small team, but you know everybody thinks slightly differently, and you know we you know we 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 collect regularly. We have we have you know like weekly office hours. We have our regular team meetings. We we document everything. People are always kept informed. People are encouraged to share their views. We have a group chat for the for the for the company, you know, and so. We really want to hear what's going on with people, and and that's all of it. That's you know, and, and it's not just about the work, right? It's not just about the work. It's you know, here's you know what I was you know here's what I was doing with my family, or I attended Pride this weekend, mm. or it's Juneteenth. Here's what I did, or you know, um, it's it's encouraging people to bring themselves completely as they are, and it means it means leading by example. It means that, for example, um, as, as co-founder of the company, you know, if I'm having a bad day for, you know, for, for some reason, I can go into the group chat and say, look, I'm having a bad day. Don't expect much of me today. And so I'm showing that humanness, mm. right? And a lot of us are scared to do that because that's what we, you know, we've been told that that's not okay, especially, especially I think men, but people also in leadership positions, you know, showing that vulnerability is something that's often frowned upon. But again, where does it come from? And is that the way that we want to live for the rest of our lives? Is that the way that, is that healthy for the future of people and planet? Yeah. Because I don't think it is. Yeah. I mean, this is something I kind of want to dive into because I'm finding this quite interesting as I'm hearing it from the little bits of story here and there. But it's like, you know, the the kind of ignorant view right now is your workplace is people work when they want, how they want, and if they feel like it. But you're saying, yeah, exactly. That's the best way to get high quality work. But it goes against everything that we've been, you know, hammering on about for the last hundred years of capitalism. So can of talk to me about how this this system works if people are working when they want how they want all over the world how do we get anything done in a in a timely manner <laughs> well who says that things have to be done in a timely manner mm. yeah you know what is what is what is what is driving that idea that there's a time in which certain things have to be done are we doing things in a timely matter, manner so that the people who are already rich can get richer while the poor continue to get poorer mm. Are we doing things in a timely manner so that, you know, corporations benefit 
while the individual workers continue to suffer. Mm. Right. Um, if something is not healthy for the people within the company, how can the company itself be healthy? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it shouldn't mm. be. I mean, you know, but and, and 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 is making money the only thing that is important? I don't think it is. I think people are important. Yeah. Right. And, you know, people feeling fulfilled and happy. Imagine, if you will, a situation where everybody had shelter, everybody had food and everybody had enough of an income to get the necessities in life. How then would we choose to live our lives? What would we choose to do? Mm. What would still be important to us? Yeah. Right? Why why do we you know, why do things the way they've always been done when it's clear that it's not working for so many of us? Uh it's you know, it's affecting people's health, it's killing the planet. You know, if we were really sensible we'd be you know, everybody would be rushing to a new system. Yeah. You know? We we put out we put out a black paper on equalism that um, that lays out some thoughts on on how we could do things differently or ask some questions rather yeah because we you know we never assume that we have all the answers mm. but we're saying that you know we need to be asking different questions if we're going to do things differently and better and more healthily for everyone yeah and for the planet that we live on yeah I mean talk to me about this black paper I'm assuming it's a play on the phrase white paper which is an instruction manual for how things work <laughs> so talk to me about this black paper how does it work it is how does it work what, what's going on there I'm... like what, what's in, in that document our tagline is black paper because why should everything be white yeah. <laughs> fair enough yeah right yeah so we we talk about we talk a lot about how we got mm -hmm. here Talk a little bit about how we got here, you know, the harmful systems that we've inherited that have got us to this point. And and then we talk about reimagining the reimagining the future and, 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 and thinking about things differently based on several several frameworks that, that we've been using that are working for us. So first of all, you know, there's like the the three step um, process of change, which is the as is the to be and getting from A to B. Mm. So, you know, here's where we are. Here's where we'd like to get to. Here's some ways of thinking about how to get there. We have our, our, our rail framework, which looks at representation, equity, accountability, and leadership, and how those those uh, play into thinking about some of the different systems that we have in business and in other parts of our lives that, that could be changed, mm -hmm. right? We have, ooh, what else? We have our, um, we have another framework which we call FAIR. I'm going to, you know, it's like, um, uh, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head all the things that it stands mm -hmm. for. But it does in, include um, radical personal responsibility for making change, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, it, you know, we, we, We've thought about, oh yes, and then and then, um, the individual, the tension between the individual and the collective. You know how we can be fulfilled as people while also um, contributing to the collective good. I'll send you a link after if you want, and you can have a read 
and see what's in oh, that. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Right? I think me and the listener need to read this black paper because it'd be the first one I've come across that isn't blackmail, which, you know, again, is one of those things where it's like, <laughs> why, why does the bad mail have to be blackmail? You know, it's, it's a crazy thing. But, you know, yes. you, you seem to be quite like, I guess, like a marketing whiz, you know, whether it's consciously or, or subconsciously, because you've written a book and it's called I'm Tired of Racism. That, you know, that title alone sells the book. <laughs> Talk to me about the process of, of writing, you know, your other books as well as this book. What did that look like for you? Did it come naturally? Because I know you've worked in, in journalism before, but, you know, writing a book is a, a whole different monster to uh, to tackle, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, I worked as a journalist for a long time and then I worked as a freelance writer until very recently. But what actually happened, the current book, I'm Tired of Racism, goes back to... May 2020, George Floyd, and I wrote an essay, which I published on Medium at the time, called I'm Tired of Racism, because I just felt this bone-deep weariness with all the ways that black people were suffering all around the world constantly just because of the colour of our skin. Hmm. And as a result of that, I ended up starting an anti-racism newsletter, antiracismnewsletter.com, and publishing regularly. Sometimes, some, a few months in, someone said to me, you know, I'm sure your newsletter is really valuable, but it would be so helpful if I had some of this stuff collected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, okay, fine. I will, I'm going to collect some of these essays in a book. And, you know, I, I write about different things. I write, uh, you know, one of my early series of articles was about working while black. And then I broadened that out to existing wild black and talking about some of the experiences that we have, like, you know, like what happens when you eat out, what happens when you go into a shop and you get followed around and so on. Right. Just sharing stories of things that had happened to me, which, which people found relatable because, you know, for most black people that I know, they've had several of these experiences throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Many white people couldn't quite believe it, but of course, because I'm telling this as a story and then people are saying, yeah, this happened to me too. They say, oh my God, now, you know, now I'm starting to get it. And then, you know, I talked a little bit about the post-colonial context in, in Barbados and the Caribbean. And then some of the pieces were, some of the pieces were commenting on, on the news as well. And, it, and then it also includes, I think, a couple of poems because, you know, I occasionally write poetry, although, you know, not many people have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I gathered that together and decided that I was going to produce this book, um, which eventually, after a long process, came out last year. And the long process was I didn't end up going with the original publisher. I ended up self-publishing um, you know, I, I, I have, you know, I got it edited professionally. Um, and so, yeah, and I've had really great feedback on it. Mm. I've had really great feedback on it. Uh, you know, I think stories provide a very relatable and easy and accessible way for people to get into what the experience of racism is like for black people day to day. Yeah. You know? Um, one of my, one of my most popular pieces, I think it's called Paper Cuts, Paper Cuts Still Make You Bleed. And it's about a day in the life, right? From morning to evening of all the things that could happen to you as a black person. And, you know, I end with, you know, you, you might not experience all of these every day, but you'll probably experience at least some of them, you know? 
starting with, you know, you're watching the morning news and something's happened to another black person to, you know, you're you're in the office and somebody assumes you're there to make the tea or the security guard doesn't let you in because even though you've been there every day for five years, they still somehow think you're a stranger, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, the sad thing, Sam, is I didn't I didn't make anything up. This is all stuff. Mm. That's why the subtitle is True Stories of Existing Wild yeah. Black. This is all stuff that happened to me or happened to people I know that, you know, thing that, things that happen every day. Um, I have another book called Exploring Shadism, which is about colorism, which was originally a master's research project. And I finally self-published it when, when I was able to do so. Um, I am planning to do an update at some point, but you know who knows when I'm actually going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so much going on, but yeah, the 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 publishing process was was easy because I decided to self publish. Yeah. But of course, that means that you then have to spend a lot of time marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, so you you know you spend time pre promoting it, then you spend then you spend time promoting it, and then you spending time promoting it. I was having this conversation with some friends the other day, you know, you have to, you have to keep telling people that your book is out Mm -hmm. there. Otherwise you don't sell it. But that is also the case if you're traditionally published. Well, yeah, you You have that marketing machine behind you if you've got a publishing house because they have a vested interest in selling as much of that book as possible because they've got copies printed sat that they want gone. So I'm wondering for you as as an independent publisher, what does that look like? What does the marketing machine look like for you? Is it just lots of speaking engagements, lots of posts, or is it, you know, something different that I, you know, I'm not aware of? So it's a really good point. And, you know, I, I just want to add one more footnote to that to say that, you know, the publishing industry is very white. I am not convinced that if I had taken that book to anyone, they would have said, yeah, I'm dying to publish mm. this. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I decided to go it alone right from the start, more or less. Um, so the, the, what it looked like for me was, uh, you know, knowing where your network is. So my network is primarily on mm-hmm. LinkedIn. So I posted about the book and the self-publishing process for a couple of months well before I was ready to launch it. I went on to draft the digital and I set up a book purchase link and I made it available in some other stores. I uploaded it to Amazon um, as well. And so I made it available for pre-order and, you know, kept posting, kept telling people that the launch was coming, did a LinkedIn live event, which was also streamed on YouTube. And then after that, what I've done is... You know, I've taken out little snippets and I've shared them. Um, I mention it in my newsletter. I've done podcasts and other speaking engagements. Um, interestingly, one of the pieces of work that we're currently doing at, at Mission Equality came about because someone had heard of my book. And so she got in, in touch with us. And then we ended up, you know, we ended up working with her Um, um one of the YWCA's, in fact, on, you know, organizational culture and anti-racism education, among other things. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think more people need to hear these stories. It's a way to unlock a little bit of empathy. 
And, you know, while, you know, on the one hand, you feel like people, you shouldn't have to have it unlocked, yeah. you know, like people, people should value you and care about what happens to you because we're all human beings. But we all know that, you know, sometimes it's about hearing those stories that, that, that make you think differently or that, or that touch you in some ways. And, you know, another, another piece that I think is in the book was, um, what if the tables were turned? And it's about, imagine yourself, you know, as a white person, somebody snatches your child and ships that child halfway around the world. You would call it trafficking, mm. right? Yeah. And you'd be very upset. Yeah. So in other words, you know, just put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Think about all this stuff that we have been experiencing and and, and the, the inheritance of of centuries of genocide and enslavement, right? And then, and then the current situation of, of of policies that discriminate against us, of workplaces that are toxic and particularly harmful to people who look like us, and then, and then you know, and then do something about it. If you you know, because you know, if you have the power to do something about it, it's inhumane not to do something about it. Yeah, no, most definitely. So, the the mission of Mission Equality is to bring more diversity to the workplace, more equity to the workplace, you know, more inclusion to the workplace. And I'm wondering if you have any kind of success stories that you can share or any kind of real world examples that you've experienced in Mission Equality of your work having an impact on somebody's business or somebody's life. We worked with... Uh... We worked with a, a startup uh, towards the end of last year, and what we did was a couple uh, of, of workshops. You know, I would loosely term them inclusion workshops, mm -hmm. so, but they were probably more leadership development workshops as well, yeah. where we got people to think about their their privilege in relation to the privilege, uh, relative privilege of team members in lots of different areas and how that might play into the workplace experience and also to think about workplace safety. And I know that as a result, they started uh, implementing some policy changes. They went away and talked to other members of their team. They had a better understanding of the kind of experience they might be having. And they were able to identify ways in which they were not living up to their mission that were easy fixes mm -hmm. for them. So that was one example. You know, we're currently in the middle of an engagement where a lot of culture change needs to happen. Uh, you know, but in in talking in in, in talking to people, um, we've been able to put start to put into place some things like like regular communication, like office hours. You know, keeping the the, the lines open, like changing some of the policy language in order to be less punitive and more 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 friendly and more more people friendly you know so yes certainly and and the other thing that we did um earlier this year in in July was we had an event for DEI practitioners allies advocates called equal futures it was one day in london and we basically invited all these people in and we said, here, okay, you now have the freedom to reimagine what an equal future would look like in, in, in justice, in education, in parenting, in business, et cetera, et cetera. And people just gathered around and had those conversations. 
And it was really interesting because lots of people want freedom and flexibility, but because we haven't had it, we don't always know immediately what to do with it and how to handle mm. it. So I think, you know, some people probably wanted a little more structure, but it was basically, okay, we've created this space. Now here you are, it's yours to mold as you want. And the great thing about that is that lots of people that had not had the chance to talk to each other came together and were able to have those conversations. There was a, a great plan that came out of that for getting more finance into the hands of black women who are normally underfinanced and have trouble accessing it, right? Sort of a micro loan type approach. Um, and we, we set up a WhatsApp group to support people. So, you know, the conversations are continuing to happen. We're not leading them. The people are deciding what they need to do and gathering together. But there's that space where people can come together and share. So, yeah, that's another another practical example of, of, of the work we're doing. And, and a third thing is um, we have a, an association called the Anti-Racist Leaders Association, which meets a couple times a month for once for people to ask questions, things that they're struggling with in relation to anti-racism. And the other one is for education. So, for example, we have had presentations on microaggressions, on um, sustainable sustainability and making, you know, and, and how do you do that in a more equal way, on the experience of being black and trans, on the the unbearable whiteness of neurodiversity, <laughs> you know, etc. And then we support that with a with a WhatsApp group where we share articles and discussion prompts for people to think about. And what I have seen um, as a result of doing this work, uh, my co-founder Leah and I were doing this work even before starting this company at a previous company that we were both you know, involved in, is that um, people start to feel more comfortable with taking a stance as an anti-racist and they know they know what to do they're aware of some of the pitfalls to avoid and they're more they're more confident in in challenging challenging racist behavior where they see it and 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 bigotry where they see it because i i i think it spreads out into other areas so you know some of these people are working in large firms and they're taking what they've learned and they're going out and they're influencing people there so it's a kind of ripple effect you know and i you know i really have to give props here to my my co-founder Leah Jofi Ford whom i i describe as as the magical inspiration <laughs> behind our company right i'm you know i'm a i'm a really good i'm a really good implementer i, I you know i know the anti-racism stuff she is amazing at, at you know gathering people together around a vision and 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 knowing what to do to make that actually happen so you know we're a good team yeah. we're a good i team. mean a any good business needs yeah. uh either a good co-founder or a good kind of marital partner just to bounce ideas off or to you know <laughs> balance things out as it is but I mean, the mission you guys are on is such a, a big mission. You know, in, in the last 10 to 20 years, we're seeing movements in the right direction for, for all kinds of people to be able to work in a way that's, you know, beneficial to them and beneficial to the workforce. But one thing that I'm kind of curious about is what does the future of anti-racism look like? What does the future of DEI look like 
And is it something that we're moving towards fast or is it something that we're slowly creeping towards? The future looks like, I'm going to answer that by saying when we did our original black paper, because the current one is, is an update, what we said is that, that, you know, when we achieve our mission, we won't need to exist mm. anymore, right? When we get to a stage where people are treated equally and the color of your skin is no more important than anything else, you don't have to gather around that identity of, of, of being black in order to feel that togetherness, in order to have that political clout. Mm. When, when you're getting what you need as of right, as a human being to be empowered and embodied and, and, and be your whole mm -hmm. self, then we won't need anti-racism and we won't need DEI or any of those things. Now, we're not there yet. You know, this is not, I, I don't even know, I don't know when we'll be there. I know that it's important to work towards it. I think anything that we can do to embed more equality in our lives and eliminate as much racism as possible moves us closer to the kind of world that we all want to live in you know i always bring up i always bring up star trek i'm a little bit of a trek <laughs> right and right you know when you look at when you look at the people on the on the bridge they're they're right they're all kinds of aliens alien species you know some of them are have breathing devices. Some of the, you know, they have they have what they need, and it's just provided. And it's not, you know, just because they look different, it doesn't mean they can't do the job. And this, everything that they are comes into how they do those do their jobs, how they live their lives. Then you can imagine if we could get that balance right in our world, mm. wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Oh yeah, no, it definitely would be. And something else I'm curious about, you know, the work you're doing is, is very important work. And it's something that, you know, most people talk about having a mission and whatever else, and it doesn't really matter. But your mission is one that affects people and changes lives. But what is it about what you do that brings the most joy? I love it when I see the light bulb moments. I love it when I see people start to get it. I love it when I see people taking the when i see the ripples going forward and i know that i've had a small part in shifting how people think about an issue or helping people have that confidence you know i i you alluded to the fact that i i worked as a as a teacher i, I was a journalism lecturer at coventry university for a few for a few years and you know as a as a as a teacher um as a as an educator and as a leader, you want people to you want people to get it. You want people to understand, and you want them to be able to take it forward and use it for good in their own lives, in their own own circles. You know, you don't want to hoard the knowledge. You want to spread it, and, you know, and you want that knowledge to to lead to action that actually makes change. So you know, we we see education as an agent of change, and so. Part of our part of our business in the service of that mission on the path to equality is providing some of that education, uh, not in the not in the old way of giving people lots of resources and giving people lots of reading to do, but asking lots of questions that make people think and lead them to take action when they have resolved those questions for themselves. Where can the people find you online? People can find 
me at missionequality.com. Uh, we also have a site called equaliversity.com, which is where our leadership development program is. You can subscribe to my newsletter at antiracismnewsletter.com. You can find more details about me, SharonHH.com. Um, and I'm most active on LinkedIn, so that's the best place to connect with me on social media. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.